Hear God's word from Hebrews. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble in fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So see that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things which have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is God's word. Well, we are about done with a study of the book of Hebrews, and we are this next next Sunday will be the last week in our in our study in this book for the last few months. And this is part two of something I began last week, which is this idea. This is a, this letter of Hebrews is really a sermon sort of wrapped in a letter. It has some features of a letter, but it's really one of the first complete sermons we have. And here we have kind of the the take-home, the come-to-Jesus moment, if you will, of in uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Because remember that he's writing to a group of Christians who are really struggling. Their faith is being shaken. They're uh, wondering if they should keep going with the faith and why do we keep pursuing. That's what we've said all throughout this study. Why is it that we keep going in our faith? And last week we looked at that he's saying the real pivotal question here is, if there is a good God who loves me so much, why are things so hard right now? And that question echoes throughout the ages. All of us ask that sometimes. If, if this is all true, why do things get so hard? Last week, we looked at the first half of, of the answer, the author of Hebrews' answer to this, which is this idea of if you're true sons and daughters, you're going to be disciplined, and that hard things sometimes come as discipline to us to train us. And we looked at that. And then the second, he moves the analogy a bit, and he talks this week about shaking. He talks about why in the hard things that happen, there's a real blessing in the shaking. 
How many of y'all have lived through an earthquake of any, not the little earthquake we had here a few years ago? That wasn't an earthquake. How many of y'all lived through a, an earthquake of any magnitude or whatever? If you've lived through it, it's, it's an unforgettable experience if you have. I, we lived in Southern California and didn't have a, a big one when we were out there. But when I was in Honduras on a short-term mission trip, uh, this was in the late nine, nine, 1998 probably or so, we were... Um, one morning having uh, breakfast in this sort of concrete building out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I turned to the guy next to me and I said, wow, I didn't know this was like a loading dock building. I can feel the truck kind of rumbling because it felt like an 18-wheeler had pulled up. And then all of a sudden, the Honduran guys in the kitchen who weren't as ignorant as us Americans said, everybody out of the building in whatever they you know, spoke. It was enough to let you go out. It's an earthquake. And we were kind of like this. And... As we walked outside into this sort of field, it was kind of an empty field and dirt, I watched kind of a ripple come in the ground and, and almost like rode it like a wave. I don't know what the size, you know, seismic thing was on it, but it, it was significant enough that we had some, build, some you know, not our building, but other buildings. There was cracks, but nothing fell, but other buildings fell and collapsed. And the most disconcerting part was that there was nothing to hold on to. The earth itself was shaking. You know, when you're, when you're on some ride or in an airplane that's shaking, you just say, please land the plane, land the plane. You know terra firma is coming, right? There's, you're going to get out of the shaking. But having, this was the only real earthquake of any magnitude I've lived through, and, uh, and there was nothing. There was nothing to hold on to. The earth itself under us, the tectonic plates shifting, and it was really disconcerting. I don't know what it would be like to live in, in one of those quakes that things are collapsing and you feel like there's absolutely nothing. Well, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell his people is you have a choice to live a life that's completely shakable where you have nothing to hold on to that's going to last or you can choose to live in a way where you have something firm with the shaking going on. The shaking's going to happen. The war is on, right? Famous line from what Lord of the Rings where they say, you know, we don't, we don't want the war. And uh, I think it's Aragorn says, whether you want the war or not, it's upon you. Only question is, what are you going to do about it? The shaking is upon us. We live in a world full of shakable things. And the author, what he does is he compares two lives to two different mountains. And so... He uses, in comparing, he uses the same verb twice, and we'll start, if you have your Bible, look at Hebrews 12, 18, where we started reading, and he uses a very particular verb twice, and in verse 18, he says, for you have not come, and then he refers to something, and then he compares it to, in verse 22, but you have come, he uses that same verb, and they would have picked up, it was an unusual verb, and they would have picked up, you haven't come here You have come here. So what is he talking about? You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, sound of a trumpet, a voice whose words make the hearers beg that no further message can be spoken to them. What is he referring to? Well, for those of you who know your Bible, he's referring to in Exodus 19, the book, uh, the mountain of Sinai, where the law was given. So, if you want to turn with me, it's uh, Exodus chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading 
at verse 16. So this is when Moses was sent up to receive what? What did he receive on Mount Sinai? The law. Mount Sinai is synonymous with the receiving of the law of Moses. Okay, so here we go. On the morning of the third day, Moses is up on the mountain. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. It's exactly what he refers to, though he never names it. So that all the people in the camp trembled. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. There's some sort of earthquake event there. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. So there's this cataclysmic event where the whole mountain is quaking. What was the response of the people? And it even says that Moses, and it doesn't say this in Exodus, but it it does in uh, Hebrews. It says that even Moses himself was trembling with fear, right? Verse 21, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So what was the people's response to God showing himself? Don't talk to me. I I can't look at you. This is too much. That's a very common, actually, biblical response. What's Isaiah sees the Lord in Isaiah 6? What does he say? Oh, come, come at me, God. Give me more. He says, woe unto me. I am a man of unclean lips. Peter has revealed to him that in the boat that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. What does he say? Depart from me. There's something. Why? Why is it that on Mount Sinai, why is it that he says, I, I, I don't want God? Because when you see yourself in light of a holy God and you know you're that kind of person, you know yourself, you you hopefully aren't lying to yourself, you know your own heart, that there's something in us that the law says, this is the measure, this is the standard. And if we're honest with ourselves, we know we don't measure up. And, you know, we can see this so easily because when the things that we put our trust in, our identity in, that matter to us, when they're taken away from us, why why bother to live anymore? I was talking to somebody this week, and they were relating how a loved one, a relationship had, had, had totally, you know, broken apart. And there was a sense of, what's life for? Why bother? that tells us that there's something rooted in us that can be taken away. And and good things. Glenn was mentioning his sermon. Good things. There's things that God has given as gifts, but it's all shakable. When we put our trust in the fact that I'm good enough. I'm good enough. Or I'm not good enough. If we're good enough, we have pride and look down on others who aren't. And if we're not good enough... Why bother? We're not going to measure up. The law is that yardstick that says you either measure up or you don't measure up. And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, if you come to this thing that can be touched and you hear the voice of God, he says this is a place of what? Of gloom, of death. Even the, the beasts die when they touch this mountain. 
It's the mountain of the law. It's the mountain where we're not enough. It says, if you approach this mountain, it'll shake you. There's nothing solid. And in this world, there is nothing solid that's rooted in a comparison of how we're doing. And then he says, but you haven't come there. What he's trying to do is, and what I want to do, my, my goal in this is, is so similar to, to the goal that the writer of Hebrews had, is that I want to help us, and I include myself in this, I want to help us live securely rooted so that your faith and your life isn't going to be upended by the shaking that either already has come or inevitably will come. If you haven't been shaken, some of y'all I know have been shaken. Some of you will be shaken. We'll all be potentially shaken at various points. And, And I don't know where it's coming from. Like the earthquake, it sometimes just comes. And you can't predict it. And you don't know its duration. But I long, like the writer of Hebrews, that your faith wouldn't be shaken, it wouldn't be burned, it wouldn't be snatched away, and you wouldn't think, how can there be a loving God? How can God be the kind of God I've been taught if these kind of hard things are coming and are upon me? So he says, don't come to this mountain. Don't come to Sinai. And for the Jews listening, they would have known, but every one of us has Sinai in their heart that says, I can measure up. I'm good enough or I'm not good enough. And he says, come instead to a different mountain. He says, come to Mount Zion. Let's read again. We'll pick up again Hebrews 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. It's the city of the living God. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's that's where God's presence is. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So what's this mountain like? It's a place of joyful approachability. Where God's there. What, what was Mount Zion? You know, Mount, you know, we, we talk about Mount Zion. What, what is it? Okay, so... Back when David first became king, there's a little hill, one of the hills of Jerusalem. It's called Mount Zion. It's south of the Zion Gate, strangely enough, the south part of the old city. It was the original Mount Zion. The Jebusites lived there. David took it over. We learn in, I think it's Second, second Samuel 5, maybe. Don't quote me on that. But he, he takes it over, and he makes that place his center. And he says, this is a place where God will be worshipped. This is a place where our God will reign. Now, over time, the place they've called the Temple Mount, where uh, it's Mount Moriah, but they've actually called that, that Mount Zion sort of been a movable feast. They've kind of moved it a couple times. And if you ask someone in Jerusalem today where Mount Zion is, it's not actually the Jebusite hill anymore. But what it's become is a metaphor, an analogy of a place where God is in charge. That's Mount Zion. It's in Jerusalem. It's in the place where his, he, you were able to dwell in his presence. In their context, it was in the temple. It was in that place. For us, the Holy Spirit having been released, it dwells with us. The Holy Spirit dwells with us and in us. 
And so he says, look, you are to dwell, you are to live not at Mount Sinai with the law, but you are to live in a place of grace. Your access is assured. Why? It says you are the church of the firstborn. We talked about this last week. What did the firstborn get in, in, in when this was written? Everything. Progenitor. The firstborn gets everything. If you split up the property of a family, everyone is weakened. You wanted to keep the land, all the assets together. And so the firstborn got everything. We still see it like, you know, read any Jane Austen novel, right? You know, oh, my, the duke got the land. And, you know, you were the wrong gender. You were the wrong birth order or you were whatever. And so you didn't get it. And here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You're the firstborn. And what's interesting is if you look all throughout scripture, it's the secondborns who end up getting the inheritance throughout so much. Look at, look at uh, Jacob. He's not the firstborn, is he? And this is why it says right before this, Esau gave up his birthright for pottage. And this is why the writer is saying, don't give up your birthright. You're the firstborn for temporary pleasure and to get out of being in hardship, don't give up being the firstborn. You are the church of the firstborn. Live in that. Then he says something very, very strange. He says, look at this wonderful place of Mount Zion, just camping out with the Lord on the mountaintop. You're going to come to God who is the judge of all. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm thinking of a place where it's really like relaxing and graceful, I'm not thinking, I want someone to judge me. That's awesome. Just bring it on. Why would he say the judge of all is here with us in Mount Zion? The judge to me belongs on Mount Sinai, right? Because I get judged for being too weak or too fearful or a big liar or whatever the accusation is. Why? Well, what, what does a judge do, all right? I, we have Bob come up and give, a, uh, give an example of what a judge does, but, but I, 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 uh, I, I can Google it, so I just said, and I, and, okay, there's two different kinds. There's a jury trial that we're really familiar with. Just watch Law and & Order, and you have a jury trial, right? Or you have a bench trial, and a bench trial is what the Bible is full of. We don't get to decide. The bench trial is where the judge decides. He not only lays out the rules, and here's the evidence, he makes the decision. And so what we have is we bring our case before the Lord, and he makes a decision. So why is it good news that the judge of all reigns? Well, this whole passage is about people living in judgment. They're living in the judgment that's coming against them because their culture is coming against them, and they're trying to judge between do we walk with the Lord and keep our faith? Do we go another way? How do we, are we measuring up in this? And so what we come back to is this. Jesus, it says, is also there on Mount Zion with the judge of all. And what is Jesus in this? He says he's the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? 
All right, innocent Abel is killed by his brother Cain, right? And the Bible says that the blood in Genesis 4, the blood of Abel cries out for justice. And you see, in every other religion in the world, you've got this idea of you me- here's the standard, measure up, and depending on the criteria for whether you measure up or not, you're going to get in, be righteous, be not righteous. And Christianity is not like that. If you've got your Bible, I, I would love for you to turn to Matthew 27, verse 51. Because we have another shaking that's recorded. Matthew chapter 27, verse 51. See, what we have in Christianity is a judge who sends his only son, one with the judge of all, and he is on a cross. And it says in verse 51, as Jesus cries out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit, he dies. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. There on Mount Zion, there outside the gates of Jerusalem, there's another shaking going on, and the shaking that we deserve because we don't measure up. And one is shaken, the only one who shouldn't have been shaken is shaken. And he receives the judgment of God. And in that, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's true and what's lasting can't be taken away from you if you know the one who's already been shaken who's received the judgment that we deserve. Because you're planted in something that lasts forever. See, there's an ultimate shaking that's spoken of in Haggai. The the, uh, prophet Haggai, in chapter 2, verse 6, he says that there's a a shaking that's going to be going on in the whole earth and this final judgment. And it, some people think it's going to be a literal shaking that's going to go on, that, you know, cataclysmic. I, I don't know. But he speaks of uh, the ultimate shaking that will happen. And I don't want us, when, whenever, whether it's an end time shaking or whether it's just a shaking of life, I want us to be rooted in Mount Zion. I'd love for you this week to spend some time because this psalm that we read this morning, Psalm 48, spend some time this week just reading about what David experienced in Zion as he set up his city where God has made himself known, where people are astounded at the presence of God. God's going to do you a tremendous favor in shaking your life. It's whether he's already done it, is doing it now, because he's going to remind you of what's forever. The longer we cling to idols and things that will go away, the longer your life will feel so tenuous. The more you can cling to things unseen but everlasting, the more you will feel and live securely. I know it's hard. It's not the natural way to live. It's the Christian way to live. It's 
the most unnatural human thing, and yet what we'll find in it is the unshakable God lives there. As we celebrate this morning, the body and the blood of the Lord, as he was shaken for us, it starts here. It starts with our remembering that Jesus Christ, the unshakable one, paid the ultimate shaking for you so that you can live securely. On the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples. He broke a piece and said, take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this for the remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took a cup of wine. When he'd given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink this, every one of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you do it, do it in remembrance of me. O great God, who is a consuming fire, who burns away the dross and burns away the things that are burnable in order to leave what is precious and lasting behind, we pray you would consume the parts of us that are rooted in temporal things that will never last and cannot satisfy. Lord, it says it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, but I found it a comfort to place myself into the hands of a living God. You are a gentle surgeon who removes the parts that would kill us in order to encourage the parts that would remain forever. And so, Lord, as we take and eat, as we reminded and meet you here in this sacrament, we ask you at the, this point of grace, Lord, to strengthen our faith. Lord, for those of us who are on the cusp of believing, we pray that this would be a time when we would declare, yes, I believe. We offer you all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.